We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Go episode 583 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. Oh, and four. Uh, that now is the game seven record for NBA teams that in postseasons have overcome 3 0 series deficits to force those game sevens. Uh, the four teams the 1950, 1951 New York Knicks the 1993-1994 Denver Nuggets, the 2002-2003 Portland Trailblazers, and the 2022-2023 Boston Celtics. NBA teams now are 0-151 all-time in playoff series in which those teams were down at 1.30. We had a dud of a Game 7 on Memorial Day night. The Celtics at home got ripped by the Miami Heat, 103-84. The Heat in this game led for every second of the second, third, and fourth quarters. And so the NBA Finals are set. The Miami Heat, the eight seed in the Eastern Conference versus the Denver Nuggets, the one seed in the Western Conference. The Heat's team president is the legendary Pat Riley. The 2023 NBA Finals will be his 19th NBA Finals as a player, head coach, or executive. Think about that. 19 NBA Finals. Three as a player, 10 as a head coach, and now six as an executive. Not too shabby. Uh, Oh, by the way, the Stanley Cup Final now is set. The Vegas Golden Knights, the team that the Capitals beat in the 2018 Stanley Cup Final, uh, that team now has advanced to a Stanley Cup Final for the second time in the team's six-year history. A 6-0 win at the Dallas Stars to win the Western Conference Final, four games to two. And so the Stanley Cup Final will have the Golden Knights against the Florida Panthers. Hello and welcome to this Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi Podcast. What was, as of early Tuesday morning, the number 47 podcast in the country? 
on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. A thank you to you for that. And in fact, as a thank you to you for that, I have on this show not one, but two guests for you. Yes, this is the rare two-guest installment of the pod. Uh, Next segment, Commander's Analyst Mark Bullock, uh, one of the top people out there for uh, X's and O's breakdowns of the commanders. Mark is going to join us for part one of a two-part conversation. And we end this part one with Mark are going to focus on the commander's offensive line. Has it been sufficiently addressed this offseason? Has the offensive line been improved this offseason? Uh, we will go spot by spot on the line. And uh, Mark's going to provide some outstanding analysis, including a terrific explanation for why the commanders are having Samuel Cosme at right guard and Andrew Wiley at right tackle, as opposed to the other way around. Uh, And Mark's going to get into what we should anticipate from running back Antonio Gibson this coming season, given that uh, Eric Bieniemy now is the team's assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator. And then after Mark Bullock, I'm going to welcome to the podcast for the first time, Ben Golliver, national NBA writer for the Washington Post, and he's going to tell us all about the hiring of Michael Winger as president of Monumental Basketball and what now for our Wizards. Uh, Ben has spoken with Winger at length, uh, just wrote a good profile on Winger. Ben is very plugged into the NBA, and so we're going to get tremendous perspective on who this guy Michael Winger is, what he has done, and what might be his plan for the Wizards, who quite clearly need a good plan? Uh, so Mark Bullock on the Commanders and Ben Golliver on the Wizards. Two very smart guests coming up on the show. Also on the show, I'll discuss the Nationals. Uh, they late night on Monday night lost at the National League West leading and now National League leading Los Angeles Dodgers 6-1. And I'll talk Orioles, a uh, not-so-good Memorial Day for them, a 5-0 loss to the Cleveland Guardians at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon in a game in which center fielder Cedric Mullins suffered a potentially serious injury. We'll see. He suffered what O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference called, quote, a right abductor groin strain, end quote. Uh, the O's lost this game despite another very good performance by starting pitcher Tyler Wells. One run in six innings with seven strikeouts versus no walks. Uh, Oh, by the way, the NCAA tournament and college baseball is set. Maryland is the number two seed in the Winston-Salem Regional. The number four seed in that Winston-Salem Regional is George Mason. So the Terrapins and the Patriots in the same regional. I like that. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback to my conversation with the great Howard Gutman on Monday's show, episode 582. Uh, Howard Gutman, former United States ambassador to Belgium, a high-level attorney, uh, a man who is extremely well-connected, a man who is very familiar with all that is going on with the Josh Harris group. Uh, Howard knows multiple people in the group. Uh, He provided us with excellent insight on what's happening between the Harris group and the NFL in the sale of the commanders. Uh, Tweet from Robert O'Connor. Great interview with Mr. Gutman. Uh, Thank you, Robert. Tweet from Keith Horton. Incredible from Howard Gutman. As always, every time he's on, I walk away more informed and more enlightened. We want more of Howard. (laughs) Thank you for that, Keith. Uh, Tweet from Mike. If Harris threatened to walk, it wouldn't take me 10 seconds to call that bluff if I was the NFL. He was a serious bidder on Denver. He clearly wants in on the NFL, and there is probably a significant exit fee if he walks. NFL to Harris, you want in, we want you in, fix the deal. 
Uh, thank you for that, Mike. Yeah, as Howard Gutman said toward the end of our conversation, whatever the NFL needs done, uh, the Harris Group will make that happen. Uh, as Howard said, the NFL is like the mob. When the NFL tells you that it needs something done, there really is not a no. Uh, there's just a, how do you want me to put the yes? <laughs> okay, that was a great line from Howard, and uh, that was a very true line. Uh, the Harris Group's purchase of the commanders is going to get approved. Make no mistake about that. Uh, the approval just isn't going to come as soon as we want. And I do think that there's a conversation pertaining to that. Like, why is it that these NFL owners aren't going to vote on the sale until July or even August? I mean, we're not even into June yet. Why does the vote have to wait until July or even August? Uh, email from Rob, uh, Nats president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo, who I, over the years, have called the ninja because Mike has been so good at uh, just totally working other general manager types in terms of trades. Uh, writes Rob, is it time to bring back your Mike Rizzo ninja soundbite yet? Uh, while you're at it, why not anoint this cool kung fu customer Rizzo, the Rizzo, R-Z-O, like Wu-Tang Clan's the Rizza. RZA. <laughs> uh, thank you for the email, Rob. Listen, I am all for Wu-Tang Clan influence on this podcast. That's a great idea. And, you know, the RZA was considered the de facto leader of the Wu, uh, just like Rizzo is the leader of Nats baseball operations, although he does answer to ownership, the learners. Uh, yeah, look, the number one reason that the Nats had to enter into this rebuild was a sustained stretch of bad drafting and bad player development. That stretch falls squarely on Mike Rizzo, okay? So I, in recent years, have not done much in the way of calling Rizzo the ninja. But if, in fact, this rebuild isn't going to take very long, and if, in fact, the trades by the Nats from these last two summers work out to a significant extent, uh, then yes, the ninja mantra will be back. Uh, and I still look at something like the Lane Thomas trade as a classic ninja move. The Nats, on July 30th, 2021 traded starting pitcher John Lester to the St. Louis Cardinals for outfielder Lane Thomas. Mike Rizzo incredibly got a team to give up something for John Lester, who at the time of the trade had an ERA of 5.02 and a whip of 159 over 16 starts in the 2021 regular season. And Lane Thomas has become a nice player for the Nats. Uh, he has been their best hitter this season. And so we call the Lane Thomas trade a classic ninja strike. Yes, there it is. The sound of the ninja strike. Well, if only there was a ninja strike uh, that could fix what's happening in the home and auto insurance markets right now. Uh, we are routinely seeing 20% increases in home and auto insurance, even when the account is clean, meaning no accidents or violations on the auto insurance and no claims on the property insurance, uh, you right now have every reason to shop your home and auto insurance. And that's why you should go with BMC Insurance. Check out BMC Insurance. Go to insurancebmc.com and you'll be put in touch with the owner and president, Matt Brooks, a loyal listener of this podcast. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. BMC Insurance, it offers home insurance, auto insurance, and also small business insurance in Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and North Carolina. 
BMC Insurance is an independent insurance agency, meaning that it has many, as in dozens, of insurance carriers it works with to make sure that clients are always paying competitive rates. Uh, What's especially great about BMC Insurance is that it has relationships with its clients. Uh, BMC Insurance is a trusted advisor for your insurance needs. BMC Insurance continues to work with clients after sales. Uh, It has team members who actually shop clients' insurance every year when they renew. And BMC Insurance does this proactively so that you don't have to. BMC Insurance will save you time and money. And perhaps most telling, BMC Insurance's client retention rates historically are much higher than industry averages. When people get BMC Insurance, they stay with BMC Insurance. Don't get gouged on your home and auto insurance. Check out BMC Insurance. Go to insurancebmc.com. Talk to my guy, Matt Brooks, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. And BMC Insurance does offer small business insurance. So if you're looking for general liability, workers' comp, or commercial auto insurance, BMC Insurance can help. Visit insurancebmc.com. That's insurancebmc.com. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. So the Commanders on Tuesday are beginning their second set of OTA practices this offseason. This is another three-day set of OTA practices, Tuesday through Thursday, May 30th through June 1st. Uh, We last week had the team's first set of OTA practices this offseason, Tuesday through Thursday, May 23rd through the 25th. And so we shall see. If uh, this week the Commanders have the three notable absentees who the team had last week, edge defender Chase Young, edge defender Montez Sweat, and left tackle Charles Leno Jr., uh, it is worth noting that Chase last offseason did not attend the Commander's first week of OTA practices, but was in attendance during the second and third weeks. But, you know, with everything going on with the Commanders, the sale of the team, the quest for a new stadium, the uh, never-ending name conversation, the quarterback situation, it is easy to lose sight of something that was a really big deal last season and was a really big deal going into this offseason, the offensive line. The team's offensive line cratered last season, and I believe cost the team a playoff spot. I think that if the offensive line had been better, the team would have made the playoffs, even with what went down at quarterback with Carson Wentz and Taylor Heineke. And so I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Commanders analyst Mark Bullock. Uh, He also is a Commanders fan, and he does excellent Commanders film breakdowns. You can read Mark's work on his Substack, Bullock's Film Room, uh, which you can find at markbullock.substack.com. You can follow Mark on Twitter at MarkBullockNFL. Mark is with us for the first part of a two-part conversation. Uh, We in part two of our chat We'll talk about quarterback Sam Howell and Jacoby Brissett, uh, Mark's evaluation of Chase Young's three games from last season, uh, Mark's outlook for playing time and roles at corner for the Commanders, and more. But right now, in this part one of our conversation, we're going to hone in on the offensive line and a few other items. Uh, Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Doing well. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, First time that I've had you on the show since February, so uh, before we get to the offensive line, Let's start with this. Looking at the commander's offseason as a whole uh, from a player personnel standpoint. So, you know, what the team has done in free agency, what the team did in the 2023 NFL draft, 
Do you, generally speaking, like what the team has done this offseason from a player personnel standpoint? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's not an off-season that kind of blows you away and it's like, wow, they've added all these amazing pieces. But I think generally when you accept, if you accept the decision that they're going with Sam Howell, which I think in terms of for the franchise was the right decision, um, then you you think about, that, you know, they're able to extend Deron Payne. That's good. You keep him around. Um, you're able to go and sign a few free agents like Andrew Wiley. And I think that's a good addition Um not just because you know they needed offensive line, but because he's versatile and he fits what they're doing with Eric Bieniemy, um, and he knows the system and, and he knows the kind of standards that Bieniemy's looking for. Um, so that I think is a nice addition. And then you look in the draft, and yeah, maybe they they would have liked it to play out a different way, where maybe there was an offensive lineman they wanted early that didn't quite last to them, but they still landed some good players that I think should be able to contribute early on. So um, I, I, in general, it wasn't the kind of off season that makes you go, wow, they're, they're definitely ready to, to compete, but it, it's kind of an off season that, you know, it, each individual move is, is justifiable. Um, and I thought in general, it's pretty good. So with the commander's offensive line, uh, we all went into this off season thinking that the offensive line needed a lot of work uh, off the lines collapse last season. Uh, the remaking of the commander's offensive line this offseason includes the team parting with offensive line coach John Matsko and being poised to officially promote assistant offensive line coach Travell Wharton to offensive line coach. Uh, the team signing as unrestricted free agents, tackle slash guard Andrew Wiley, center slash guard Nick Gates, and tackle slash guard Trent Scott. Uh, the team re-signing unrestricted free agent center Tyler Larson. The team in the 2023 draft taking Arkansas center Ricky Stromberg in the third round and Utah tackle slash guard Braden Daniels in the fourth round. Uh, the team releasing center Chase Roulier uh, and allowing center slash guard Wes Schweitzer and guard Wes Martin to leave as unrestricted free agents. Uh, there's also this expected cutting of left guard Andrew Norwell, who <laughs> head coach Rod Rivera last Wednesday morning in his uh, pre-OTA practice press conference for a third time this offseason, did not even mention uh, in the left guard mix. So netting all of this out, has the team this offseason done enough to adequately upgrade the offensive line? I think upgrade, not necessarily. I think in terms of the the philosophy of the offensive line as a unit going forward, I, I can see what they're doing. They've They've certainly committed to a profile of more athletic type of offensive lineman. Andrew Wiley's a lot more athletic. Nick Gates is a pretty athletic center. Stromberg's a very athletic center. And Braden Daniels is a really, really athletic left tackle. Um, and, you know, moving Cosme inside to guard and, and, and letting him be more of an athlete at guard, they're clearly they have this kind of mindset of we want to upgrade the athleticism of the offensive line. And you're moving on from guys like Norwell and, and Trey Turner or Trey Turner last year. And, um, and those type of guys that aren't necessarily the most athletic. And, and we saw last year, like with the screen game, they really struggled to get out in front on screens and, and block in space. Whereas now they've, they've kind of made a philosophy of we're going to go for this athletic type, this athletic profile. And, we're going to have the structure in place where we're going to make use of that athleticism. I think that's a good thing. Um, so in terms of like from an individual player standpoint, the offensive line might not look like it's not 
where they were in like 2015 when it was Trent Williams at left tackle and Brandon Sheriff at right guard and Morgan, Morgan Moses and Chase Roulier. It, it's not that amazing star-studded unit, but I think it's going to be a lot more cohesive because they're all of a very similar athletic profile. Um, and that should fit into, you would imagine Eric Bieniemy is going to design the scheme around that. So um, it, it, it will hopefully, maybe they're not quite as individually as good as maybe they were a year or two ago, but um, in terms of the profile and the overall system, it should be more cohesive and, and, and more effective um, going forward. Why do you think it is that the commanders are having Samuel Cosme at right guard and Andrew Wiley at right tackle as opposed to the other way around? Um, I, I think when, when Cosme came into the league at, at right tackle, he had Brandon Sheriff at right guard and Chase Rudy at center. And they really, that really helped Cosme because Cosme had some fundamental flaws with his footwork and, and some of his hand stuff where he, he's a very athletic player that from just from a measurable st- standpoint, you think he should easily be able to handle playing right tackle in the NFL. But his technique, his footwork quite often was off and, and that threw off the timing with his hands and, and that made him struggle. And they were able to help him a lot by having Brandon Sheriff effectively slide and cover his inside shoulder and that and Chase Rudier would help cover Sheriff's inside shoulder and that would help the whole offensive line work. Once they lost Chase Rudier at center and, and Brandon Sheriff obviously left in free agency, they didn't have that, that same security and flexibility to be able to trust those guys to help him out. So um, Wiley is obviously a veteran, um, but he's not going to be as good at right guard as, as Brandon Sheriff is to help out on, on at right tackle. Um, and I think they, they kind of feel like at guards, they can use Cosme's ability to kind of climb to the second level in the run game, certainly on zone scheme stuff. Um, he will be much more effective at climbing up and reaching blocks at the second level and making those blocks at the second level. Um, whereas Wiley, Wiley could do that. Um, but I think they, they think Wiley can probably hold up on the edge on his own a little bit more um, in, in pass protection and, and sort of Cosme can, can be protected at guard a little bit more. We're talking with Commander's Analyst Mark Bullock with a particular focus on the remaking of the offensive line. Uh, when it comes to center, the expectation is that Nick Gates will be the commander's starting center. Do you think that Ricky Stromberg has a legit chance to be the starting center? Uh, I, I would think it's Nick Gates' job. I, from Just from watching their film, I think Stromberg could push him, um, especially if they want to go zone heavy um, and really lean into that kind of athletic profile that they're going for. But um, with Cosme at, guard, at right guard and you're having a, a left guard battle between Sadiq Charles and Chris Paul, both guys that are kind of unproven at this point and, and both still quite young, obviously Chris Paul younger than, than Charles, but um, you, you kind of want probably a veteran presence in the middle um, between those two younger players that are, are kind of still trying to establish themselves. So I think they will probably go with Nick Gates just for that reason. Um, but I, I could certainly see a situation where Stromberg pushes Gates and, and by the end of the year, Stromberg could easily take over um, because I, I think certainly in the run game, he's he's excellent with the zone scheme stuff. Um, and if he can handle the kind of the mental challenge of setting up protections and, and 
checking all the run calls and, and making sure they're in the right looks, um, then I, I from from his play in college compared to Nick Gates's play for the Giants last year, um, I would say Stromberg has certainly has the higher upside. With that left guard competition, uh, Sadiq Charles versus Chris Paul, you last Thursday on your Substack came out with a breakdown of Charles versus Paul. Uh, who do you think will win that competition? So it, it seems like Sadiq Charles is going to get the first crack at it, um, probably just because he's the veteran, more experienced guy. Um, in my kind of look, I, I, I see Chris Paul as being the higher upside player. Um, and again, it might come down to the fact that they've got the question mark of how Cosme will go at right guard and and Gates and, and Stromberg kind of battling out for the center spot. So maybe they want more of a experienced guy with, with Sadiq Charles. And, and Charles certainly at this point has a good understanding of, you know, protection schemes and, and diagnosing where blitzers are coming from, whether not just, you know, the front four, it, it can be linebackers or corners or safeties. Um, so they can come from anywhere. And, and he has a good, he does a really good job of diagnosing where they come from and picking that up. Um, whereas Chris Paul is, I'm not saying he can't get there, but he's just going to be less experienced. He's not going to have seen the same level of blitzes and stuff that, that Charles will have at this point. So, But I think in terms of athleticism, Charles, uh, Chris Paul is probably slightly more athletic. Um, and in the run game, and certainly in pass protection one-on-one, he, he held up in that, it's a, obviously a small sample size with that one game against the Cowboys, but he held up a lot better than, than Charles did this year. Um, so for me, I, I would lean more towards Paul, but obviously there's such a limited sample size um, and, and the coaches will see them in practice every day. Um, so they, they may well end up with Charles. But for me, from what we've seen from last year, I would, I would lean Chris Paul. In projecting the commander starting offensive line for this coming season, the lone holdover from last season is left tackle Charles Leno Jr. Uh, what's your evaluation of his 2022 season? Yeah, I think he gets a little bit of unfair criticism um, from fans because he's not this star left tackle. He's you know he's trying to replace the the, the fan base was kind of spoiled with Chris Samuel and then. Um, Trent Williams, and, and you go from two kind of Hall of Fame left tackles to Charles Leno, and Leno's not a bad left tackle at all. He's a very solid starting left tackle in the NFL, and if you're a solid starting left tackle, you're a very good football player, and he is. Um, he At this point in his, in his career, you know what his restrictions are. You know he's not necessarily going to be able to handle the extreme speed rushers off the edge. Like, you know he's going to need some help with that. And for the most part, you know, I think Scott Turner and his staff last year understood that. And, you know, they would have a running back stay into chip or they'd have a tight end stay into chip and, and help him. And and when he has that little bit of help when he needs it, then he, he holds up fine on his own. Um, so he, you know what he is. And I think when, when you know what a left tackle is capable of and when you know what his restrictions are, you can scheme around that just fine. Um, and you can trust that you're going to get kind of a, a 7 out of 10 performance from him every week. And at left tackle, that is a, a, a more valuable thing than, than what fans realize. Of course, related to the offensive line is the running game. Uh, you last week on your Substack examined how the commander's new assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator, Eric Bieniemy might make use of running back Antonio Gibson. Uh, he's entering the fourth 
and final season of his rookie contract. He, as an NFL back, has yet to emerge as the major pass-catching threat who we hoped he would be uh, when the team took him in the third round of the 2020 NFL Draft. Now, of course, the team's uh, quarterback instability has had at least something to do with that. But uh, what are your expectations for Gibson this coming season? Yeah, I think when... When they obviously drafted Brian Robinson last year, that that kind of signaled that there was going to be some kind of change um, with with his role, and we didn't we didn't get to see that play out to the fullest extent because obviously Robinson got shot and had that horrific incident at the start of the year, and he came back strongly, but he wasn't he still wasn't himself. And I think he had an interview recently with the team where he said that he still wasn't quite himself, and and he's hoping to be more explosive this year. Um, so I think Robinson's going to be the kind of lead back and he's going to be the workhorse and, and Gibson will spell him. But I think that once they drafted Rodriguez as well, he's more in line with the kind of Robinson style where it's downhill, run hard, run between the tackles um, and kind of no-nonsense stuff. Whereas Gibson looks to hit, get the edge and bounce outside and, and try to create some more explosive plays. And so once... Once they went that route with with Rodriguez, I, I kind of thought, well, that kind of cements Gibson into the kind of third down back role that obviously they had J.D. McKissick playing up until last year when he got her. Um, and that that should, in theory, that should lean into what Gibson was good at. You know, in college, he, he was a receiver. He, he wasn't a great route running receiver, but he was this explosive athlete that you got the, him the ball, you got him in space, and you let him go do work. And I think that's, that's what they would look to do. And, and certainly, um, you know, the Chiefs with, with the enemy last year, their running back, uh, Jarek McKinnon, got nine touchdowns out of the backfield last year. And it was a he was a significant threat in the red zone. When you have all these different weapons on the outside and, and Patrick Mahomes at quarterback, you're always thinking, OK, I've got to cover Kelsey. And I've got to cover this receiver and that receiver. And the kind of running back kind of gets ignored and quite often the running back can be left on a linebacker where obviously that's a mismatch anyway with Antonio Gibson on a linebacker. Um, but, you know, if, if in Washington you've got McLaurin and Dotson and Samuel and, and maybe Logan Thomas, that's a lot of weapons that the defense is worried about and the running back can kind of get left alone. So I think that is the kind of role that Gibson's going to play. He's going to be more third down stuff, more receiving role, um, get him the ball in space and let him go kind of be explosive and and hopefully with this kind of athletic profile of offensive line that we talked about earlier they can get a screen game going um and and then then we can really see just how explosive he can be yes would be nice to have a legitimate screen game this coming season (laughs) (laughs) commander's analyst mark bullock you can read mark's work on his substack bullock's film room uh, which you can find at markbullock.com substack.com. Mark, uh, thank you for this uh, part one of our conversation, and we look forward to part two. Of course. Thank you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. A big help is if you subscribe to rate and review this podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast via most platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. A subscription to the pod costs you nothing. Make sure that you never miss an episode. Uh, you want Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you want Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review can be just a sentence or two. Can't be more, but doesn't have to be. And thank you very much for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. It was last Thursday afternoon that uh, Monumental Sports and Entertainment founder and CEO Ted Leonsis announced that Michael Winger had been named president of Monumental Basketball. Uh, the press release announcing the hiring of Winger said that uh, he will, quote, oversee all aspects of operations for the Washington Wizards, Washington Mystics, and the Capital City Go-Go, end quote. Uh, the expectation is that Winger will be hiring a general manager, or at least a general manager type, for the Wizards. So the structure is going to be Winger overseeing the Wizards, but someone else handling the day-to-day operations and transactions of the Wizards. Uh, Michael Winger had been the Los Angeles Clippers general manager since July 2017. He, prior to his time with the Clippers, was an executive for the Oklahoma City Thunder and Cleveland Cavaliers. This Wizards hiring of Michael Winger is a big deal. Uh, The team is not in a good place right now. Uh, The anger and apathy toward the team appear to be at all-time highs, and the bigger picture of the Bullet Slash Wizards remains impossible to ignore. The team has not advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979. The team has not had a 50-win regular season since the 1978-1979 season. So what's going to happen with Michael Winger running the Wizards? What should happen with Winger running the Wizards? You know, NBA insider Mark Stein of the Steinline newsletter Uh, He, in an edition of the newsletter for this past Sunday, wrote, quote, pretty much every rival team I've spoken to is already expecting aggressive activity from the winger-led Wizards, end quote. Uh, Of course, aggressive can be defined 
in a variety of ways. But I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Ben Golliver, national NBA writer for the Washington Post, co-host of the greatest of all talk podcast, the GOAT podcast, which is an NBA podcast. Uh, ben for the Post just wrote a terrific piece on Michael Winger. Headline quote, Michael Winger loves to build. He'll get his chance with the Wizards. End quote. Uh, you can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Ben, very nice to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's kind of my favorite time of year. NBA Finals right around the corner, so I think you got me in a good mood, Al. Very good. <laughs> uh, a lot that I want to get to with you on Michael Winger. With this profile that you just wrote on him, you talked to a lot of people about Winger. Was there a quote or an anecdote or a theme regarding Winger that struck you the most in your conversations with people about him? Well, he just has a really interesting professional backstory, right? Like he starts with the Cleveland Cavaliers when they're trying to build around LeBron James and really accelerate things. And a lot of people remember that era for being maybe a little bit too over-aggressive. And, and LeBron winds up leaving uh, for the Miami Heat with the decision. And, you know, the, the Cavaliers don't quite get over the hump during that time period. He then bounces to the Oklahoma City Thunder in the early 2010s when they're building around the best young core in the league with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and obviously James Harden got traded, but Sergi Baca and they're trying to put a championship team together. And then uh, come 2017, uh, he winds up going to the Los Angeles Clippers and helps them put together another aspiring title contender with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. So there aren't very many guys that I know of anyways, who have had the opportunity to try to build teams around LeBron Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard here over the last 15 years. So that's quite the experience. And I think the shared theme or the anecdote that you're talking about is just really uh, his desire to build things from the ground up. You know, He made that very clear to me. He didn't want his first chance to run a basketball operations department as the president to come with a ready-made organization. I think he really enjoyed the time in Oklahoma City with Sam Presti when they're building up those young guys. I think he really enjoyed um, the strategic elements of trying to turn the Clippers around in 2017. They trade Blake Griffin kind of out of nowhere and, and then, you know, wait about a year and, and wind up recruiting Kawhi Leonard and trading for Paul George. I think he really likes that early action, right, in the, uh, in the building process. So um, I think that's why it makes a pretty natural fit with the Washington Wizards as a franchise that hasn't had a true regime change. In two decades, it's a franchise that's been pretty stale here in recent years. I think it's five straight losing seasons or, or missing the playoffs and kind of been adrift ever since John Wall's injury and trade, in my view. So I think you're getting a guy who's who looks at the Wizards as a real opportunity to get his hands dirty, roll up his sleeves, and, and put some of those experiences uh, you know, in, in the modern NBA with those superstar players that I mentioned to good use. The reporting on the Wizards' hiring of Michael Winger has been that Ted Leonsis is going to let Winger do with the Wizards as Winger sees fit, even if that means doing the thing that uh, Ted has never had the Wizards do, a full-fledged rebuild. Uh, do you buy this, that Winger has been fully empowered? Well, I would think so, because he's coming from an organization with the Clippers where that front office is incredibly well compensated. It's really empowered, and they have the richest owner in, in basketball, Steve Ballmer, to uh, oversee things and make sure everybody's you know living a good life. So you don't leave Manhattan Beach uh, you know, in L.A. You don't leave a, a perennial title hopeful with the Clippers. You don't leave those kinds of superstar players unless you've got a real opportunity uh, to put your fingerprints on an organization. Now, at the same time, in terms of what would the rebuild look like, you know, don't forget 
when he got to the Clippers, this was not a tear-down, five-year tank process. Right before he got there, uh, Chris Paul kind of forced his way to Houston, and that left Blake Griffin as the only superstar left on the roster. And they just made the calculation, like, look, we're not quite good enough. We're going to be on the fringes of the playoffs. We're not going to make a deep run. Let's, you know, kind of surprise the NBA, shock the world a little bit, preemptively, proactively trade Blake Griffin to the Detroit Pistons. Don't really get a star player back, but just use that financial flexibility um, and and sit on it for a year. Uh, You know, barely miss the playoffs during that down year. You're not a terrible team. You're not one of these teams, you know, kind of like in the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes. Uh, They were not in that spot during that transition. And then quickly retool by chasing Kawhi Leonard with a really aggressive free agency pursuit, and then going all in and trading for Paul George because you know Kawhi Leonard wants a co-star. Like that is not your typical rebuild process that you think of when you hear that word rebuilding. That you know, sort of like the Wizards went through where they're drafting at the top of the lottery to grab John Wall and then Bradley Beal and then Otto Porter, and it's a multi-year deal. That's not what Winger was involved with, uh, you know, with the Los Angeles Clippers, and so. You know, there's some real parallels there, right? Like John Wall's gone for the Wizards, uh, just like Chris Paul was gone for the Clippers. Bradley Beal is left with the Wizards, much like uh, Blake Griffin was left on the Clippers. And I think there is a sense when you're looking at this group, even if you bring back Porzingis and even if you bring back uh, Kyle Kuzma, is this going to be a team that wins a playoff series anytime soon with that core? I don't think so. And so to me, that kind of uh, opens the door for maybe a more radical approach. Now, you know, Michael Winger, when he was talking to me, had nothing but positive things to say about Bradley Beal. Uh, he said he hadn't really considered the, the Kuzma or the Porzingis, uh, you know, summer decisions that they're going to have to make in terms of those negotiations. But I don't think a rebuild necessarily has to get ugly, is my point. I think there's a, a couple of different ways to do it. And I'll bet you when he was in that interview with uh, Ted Leotis, knowing that Ted doesn't want to go the ugly route, all Winger had to do is say, hey, look what we did in L.A. For the Wizards, would the ugly route be the right route? Is a total teardown rebuild what the Wizards should do? Well, you look back at their track record, uh, you know, they're, they're not a huge free agency destination. Uh, I think they've got a young coach and maybe not necessarily like a proven, you know, big name coach. Uh, Bradley Beal, I think, has tried to, you know, maybe coax the people to go to Washington over the years without maybe a, a ton of success. And I do think what you look back on their track record more than anything is that the draft picks have just been a complete miss here for years and years and years, whether it was Tommy Shepard or the, the end of the Grunfeld era. So regardless of where you're picking, you got to get much better value from your draft picks, and you've got to make sure you've got those guys under team control for their second contracts. That's typically how a team that's not a destination market is really going to build a core. Look no further than the Denver Nuggets, right? I mean, they didn't have a number one pick to grab Jokic. They got him in the second round. Jamal Murray wasn't even a top three pick. You know, he's a lottery pick, but not top three. Michael Porter slid to the middle of the first round. They, they nail those draft picks, and all of a sudden, boom, uh, the team turns around and they're a perennial uh, playoff team for, for years, right? And so I think when you're in one of those non-prestige markets, the draft has to be a major focus. But they've got some real assets with these veteran players, uh, potentially if they're going to re-sign them and, and use those in, in trade uh, opportunities. And I think that's the way you do it, because I don't think you can count on landing a high-profile free agent in uh, Washington. I don't think you know, slashing the salary cap and you know, making some big play for you know, one of these uh, younger guys who's going to become a free agent. That's just really not how the NBA works anymore. It's much more about trades, and it's much more about the draft. 
We're talking with Ben Gulliver, national NBA writer for the Washington Post about the Wizards and the hiring of Michael Winger as president of Monumental Basketball. It's so funny because you're right. Washington, D.C. isn't a destination NBA city, uh, despite D.C. being the nation's capital, despite the D.C. area being a top 10 media market in this country, despite the D.C. area being an area with a lot of disposable income and advertising dollars, despite the D.C. area being an area with a rich basketball history in terms of college and high school hoops. Uh, Why isn't D.C. a destination NBA city? Well, it's a little bit of a sleeping giant, right? It's like if you you ever got some positive momentum going, then you never know where it could take off. I feel the same way about Atlanta, actually. It's like, you know, everybody seems to enjoy going through Atlanta on the road trips and having a great time you know, with the nightlife and the, the social scene and everything like that. But, you know, who exactly is trying to play there? I'm not sure. I think it's just one of those entrenched reputational things, right? And it, it really winning cures all, in my opinion, because I remember, you know, back when I was uh, first starting to cover the NBA and the national scene, like San Antonio was this jewel, you know, like a lot of uh, older free agents wanted to sign there and if people got drafted to the Spurs, they were really excited because they knew that team would take care of them and, uh, you know, get the most out of them. And, you know, the last five years, you never even hear San Antonio discussed until they get this uh, number one pick for Victor Wembanyama, right? So um, I, I do think winning cures all. And, and the problem for Washington has been an awful long time. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but 1979 was the last time they made the conference finals. Yep. Um, you know, there's, there's only so many superstar level players out there who are going to be difference makers. And when you're looking at Boston, I think it's like five Eastern Conference Finals in the last seven years. I mean, that's that's tough. You know, and in Miami, three of the last four years. I mean, there's some organizations here that have had real recent success. And, you know, Washington's just kind of been invisible for a while. And one thing I know about NBA players, too, is they don't care about 1979. You know what I mean? They, they don't really care about uh, maybe Showtime Lakers in the 80s. And that's about it from a historical standpoint. It's always about the here and now and who's hot going forward. And, you know, that's going to be part of Michael Winger's job, right? You've got to turn Washington into a little bit more of a destination, a more respected place, a place that's known for taking care of its players and, uh, you know, doing everything in the, the best possible way they can do it. And again, to draw the comparison with the Clippers, that's exactly the same challenge they had when he took over, right? They're coming out of the Donald Sterling saga a few years after that. They're always in the Lakers' shadow in Los Angeles. They've never made the conference finals until 2021. They were they had shared a lot of characteristics with the with the Wizards that we're talking about, and they certainly felt uh, with the Clippers that they were a hidden gem as well. You know that, that they had the chance to be a destination, and I think Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, plus the fact that they're going to be opening up a new arena, it's really changed the perception of, of what the Clippers are. Now it hasn't overhauled it. They're still the little brother to the Lakers. No one's ever going to get that twisted. But uh, they're certainly in a better spot now than they were five years ago. How tradable is Bradley Beal, in your opinion? Tradable. Um, you know, I think that there would be a wide variety in terms of, uh, you know, opinions on exactly what his value is, largely because of the contract. And let's be honest, these last couple of years, it's hard to take his numbers seriously when he had the huge numbers with Russell Westbrook. And then now when he's been dealing with some injury issues more recently, it's like, is the truth somewhere in the middle? What exactly is he going to look like on a team that has championship aspirations where he's not just given the green light to go and do whatever he wants on offense? He's going to have to play, you know, kind of more of a role uh, on an effective team. But look, he has trade value. He's definitely tradable. I think the trickiest piece, though, is he's got that no trade clause, right? And, And that's obviously something Blake Griffin didn't have 
uh, to go back to that Clippers analogy where they were able to, you know, frankly blindside Blake with that trade. Uh, if you want to trade Bradley Beal, he's going to have to be an active part of those talks, right? He's going to have some sway in terms of where does he land, what type of team does he go to. It's going to narrow the market, and it's probably going to impact uh, the return price as well because of that no-trade clause. So that piece of it is very tricky. Uh, but like I said in my first conversation with Michael, he, he was not in any rush to go down that route. He said that uh, Bradley Beal was unequivocally one of the best uh, you know, perimeter players in the NBA, uh, a certified superstar and somebody that he was looking forward to, you know, being able to build a relationship with. So, um, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But I, I do think whenever Brad gets traded, he's going to have much more influence on that trade than a, a typical player in his spot. Now, you expect a Kevin Durant to be able to say, I want to go to Phoenix, and then, okay, well, he winds up getting traded to Phoenix, right? You kind of expect that type of deal. Uh, usually a player in Brad's spot wouldn't be able to do that, but he'll be able to steer this conversation uh, no question about it because of that uh, that no trade clause. Yeah, the Wizards in giving Bradley Beal the five-year, $251 million Supermax contract also gave him that no trade clause. So we're all still trying to figure out why, but yes, he absolutely got that. <laughs> uh, uh, the Wizards have these looming Kyle Kuzma and Chris Amps Porzingis player options. Uh, each guy reportedly must decide by June 21st whether to exercise a player option For next season, Kuzma's is for $13 million. Ain't no way that he's exercising that. Porzingis' player option is for $36 million. Let's assume that each guy declines his player option. Which guy would have more value in a sign-and-trade? Well, just speaking in my perspective, I think Kuzma's actually a better player, a more versatile player, a guy who fits with more types of teams. And he's an easier player to uh, fit into a winner, and he has fewer injury concerns. So to me, if I was a rival GM, I would have more interest in Kyle Kuzma than Kristaps Porzingis. Now, I don't want that to be like shading you know, Kristaps Porzingis because he had a really nice year, uh, one of his healthiest years in a while, big stats. I feel like you know he got put into a tough spot there um, in Washington. It, to me, it wasn't really a clear fit. Um, and, you know, uh, Brad's in and out, and they're playing a lot of just meaningless games along the way, right? And so there was opportunities for him to either check out or to just kind of be over it or pout or any of that kind of stuff. And I didn't really hear or see a lot of that, at least from a distance, from Porzingis. So credit to him on that. But uh, to me, you know, Kuzma, he showed it in 2020 with the Lakers when they won the title. Like, he, he fits around superstar players very well. There's some real subtleties to his game. If you give him the ball, he can score, but he doesn't have to dominate uh, you know, possession. He can chip in as a rebounder, not the world's greatest defender, but he, he works on that end and has made some improvement. And then he can you know, not play make, but he can keep the ball moving a little bit and uh, you know, keep a, a winning offense humming. So to me, I would be more interested in Kuzma personally, but uh, I imagine there's probably some Porzingis fans among your audience as well. As I noted earlier, the expectation is that Michael Winger will be hiring a general manager or at least a GM type for the Wizards. A lot of teams in sports now have this structure of a president and a GM. Why does that structure make sense in today's NBA? Well, uh, first of all, the business has gone huge, right? So let's not forget that. I mean, the money has just absolutely skyrocketed here over the last 10 years. And I think that president role often is interfacing directly with the owner and the owner is going to have concerns not just about basketball, right, but is also going to have financial concerns, maybe has uh, designs on building an arena, maybe is looking for ways to, uh, you know, beef up uh, marketing opportunities or sales opportunities or all those other kinds of things. And 
you want to have a point person for that owner. And I think, you know, a lot of presidents find themselves in that spot. Uh, with the Clippers, that was Lawrence Frank. And he had no previous front office experience before he became president of the Clippers. And, you know, basically what he was looking for with the GM and Michael Winger was a deputy, right? Kind of a COO, so to speak, right? He was president or CEO and then a guy who's going to get his hands dirty and be that deputy and be in charge of day-to-day operations. And so uh, what Michael Winger did actually was a lot of the um, heavy lifting on trade calls, on negotiations with agents and those kinds of things where uh, the president might not want to be, you know, involved until things have, you know, the, the ground has been laid uh, by a GM. And so, you know, another thing that you can do with that structure is you can kind of balance basketball operations versus the other skills that are needed. So, for example, Lawrence Frank's a former coach, right? He knows the personnel of the league inside and out. He's been scouting these guys. He's been coaching these guys. But maybe what he didn't know was the legal side, the salary cap mechanics, the economics, the, um, uh, you know, the, the different luxury tax issues and those kinds of things. And you bring in a guy like Michael Winger, who has a legal background, went to law school, is, you know, kind of comes up with, uh, you know, deep understanding of contract negotiations and the specifics of the salary cap. And that winds up being a nice compliment. So when you're looking at the Wizards and how Winger could uh, step into that president role, well, he's still the same guy, right? Like, obviously, he's going to know the salary cap even better than he's ever known it before. He's going to know the legal stuff. Uh, He's kind of progressed on that front. and, And certainly he's made a lot of connections around the league with all these trade calls and, and, and negotiations with agents. But maybe what he would be looking for is someone to complement his skill set, which is, well, maybe he needs somebody to do um, the basketball stuff that Lawrence was doing with the Clippers, right? So maybe he finds a GM who comes from a scouting background, right, or comes from a coaching background, that kind of a, uh, a compliment to him so that they have all the bases covered there in Washington. I think that's, uh, that's some of the reasons why you uh, see the president and GM thing. You know, one other minor reason is that you have a GM and he's ready for a new contract and a bigger salary. And, you know, other teams are trying to hire him. So you give him the salary and then you give him the uh, the better title. And now all of a sudden he's the president. You know, we, we saw a lot of that as well. And you'll hear the vice president of basketball operations and all these other titles these yeah. guys come up with. <laughs> a lot of times that's just because those guys have good agents. The executives do. And they're trying to angle for you know, a little bit more sway, obviously more money, and then, a, you know, a higher profile title. That's a good point. And that actually happened with Michael Winger's predecessor, uh, Tommy Shepard. He went from Wizards general manager to Wizards president and general manager. Uh, final question for you. Where would you say that Michael Winger falls in the spectrum of NBA executives in terms of analytics? Is Winger a big analytics guy? Is he not so much an analytics guy? Is he a middle-of-the-pack analytics guy? What do you think? Well, it wasn't a major topic of conversation for us in our interview. I talked to him for quite a while last week after he got hired, but he is coming from um, kind of a Spursy background, right? Like, the first guy who hired him was Danny Ferry uh, in Cleveland. The second guy who hired him was Sam Presti, uh, you know, in Oklahoma City. And then, of course, Steve Ballmer, and their front office actually got you know a little bit of a reputation for being analytically minded as well in terms of they shoot a lot of threes. They, they play a lot of small ball lineups. They do a lot of the modern stuff with Ty Lue that people associate with analytics. So uh, even if he's not sort of pitching himself as that analytics guy, and, and actually it was interesting. He was going the other way. He really wanted to be viewed not only as a builder, but also as a teacher, as somebody who's, who's uh, had responsibilities 
overseeing a department and someone who really likes to see the people underneath him grow. So he was really trying to pitch himself a little bit more in the touchy feely, um, you know, variety as opposed to like this Daryl Morey numbers quant type of guy. But, you know, you go back to the Spurs, you look at the Thunder, you look at the Clippers, all of those organizations I would consider to be pretty forward thinking when it comes to, you know, modern trends, three point shots, small ball, uh, you need superstars to win. Like all those organizations kind of embody um, those qualities. And so I would imagine that's shaped his, uh, his worldview as well. Ben Gulliver, national NBA writer for the Washington Post. Terrific insight on the new president of Monumental Basketball, Michael Winger. Uh, ben, thank you for your time. All the best. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And I uh, appreciate you reading the story. And uh, I wish you guys good luck. And we'll see where it goes. We need all of the good luck that we can get with the Wizards. So thank you very much. <laughs> Well, the Nationals currently are in the midst of a six-game road trip against two polar opposite teams. Uh, the Nats over the weekend won two or three games at the Kansas City Royals, who have the second-worst record in the majors, 17-38. and 38. The Nats on Monday night began a three-game series at the National League West-leading and now National League-leading Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, both the Royals and the Dodgers wear blue, okay? But uh, that's about where the similarities end. The Nats lost at the Dodgers 6-1 late night on Monday night in what was game number 54 for the Nats in their 162-game regular season. The Nats now are 23-31. and They're on pace for 69 wins off in the 2022 regular season, having a major league worst 55 wins. A 14-game improvement would be good, but uh, the Dodgers now are a National League best 33-22. and 22. The Nats in winning two or three games at the Lowly Royals were far from perfect. You don't have to be perfect to beat the Royals, but the Nats on Monday night did have a few mistakes, and uh, those mistakes were more than enough for the mighty Dodgers to win this game. Trevor Williams was the Nats starting pitcher on Monday night. He allowed six runs, all of which were unearned, in five innings, and all six of the unearned runs came in a six-run Dodgers fifth. Uh, Williams, for the game, gave up six hits, a homer, a double, and four singles, issued three walks, recorded three strikeouts. He threw 90 pitches, 55 strikes, versus 35 balls. The game basically was that six-run Dodgers fifth. Williams, in that bottom of the fifth, allowed six unearned runs. Uh, All of the runs were unearned thanks to a fielding error by shortstop C.J. Abrams, who botched the fielding of a potential double playgrounder by Miguel Vargas near the middle of the infield. Uh, but Williams, in the inning, gave up a homer, a double, two singles, and two walks. <laughs> this official scoring rule that has it so that a pitcher in Trevor Williams' predicament does not get charged with a single earned run in a six-run inning in which there is only one error, an error that occurred with the second batter in the inning is ridiculous. I mean, a good chunk of those runs were earned for Williams in terms of merit. But anyway, uh, the two big blows were a two-out, two-run double by the notorious Nationals killer, Freddie Freeman, uh, toward the right field corner for a 3-1 Dodgers lead and a two-out, three-run opposite field home home run by J.D. Martinez to right center field for a 6-1 Dodgers lead. Uh, The Nats' bullpen on Monday night was quite good. Uh, Two Nats relievers combined for three perfect innings. Thaddeus Ward, two perfect innings with two strikeouts. Erasmo Ramirez, a perfect bottom of the eighth. But uh, that six-run Dodgers fifth 
was more than enough as there was not much happening for the Nats offensively in this game. The Nats for the game, just one run, just six hits, just two walks. Uh, the six hits were made up of two doubles and four singles. Corey Dickerson as the Nats starting left fielder and number six batter. One for three with a double and a walk. Dickerson in the Nats one run second, a one out double to right field on a one-two pitch. But he then got thrown out at home for the third out by Dodgers right fielder Jason Hayward on a C.J. Abrams two-out RBI single through the right side of the infield. Uh, that was a bad send by the Nats third base coach, Gary DeSarcina. Again, a team like the Dodgers is going to capitalize on mistakes, even if you only make a few mistakes. Uh, C.J. Abrams on Monday night as the Nats starting shortstop and number eight batter, one for three with the RBI single and the crucial fielding error in that Dodgers six-run fifth. Uh, the Nats' other double on Monday night was by Dominic Smith. Uh, he is an at starting first baseman and number five batter, one for four. Smith in the top of the fourth, a two-out double to the right center field gap on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, Lane Thomas as an at starting right fielder and number one batter, one for four with a single. Uh, Thomas in the top of the eighth, a two-out single through the left side of the infield to extend his on-base streak to 25 games and his hitting streak to 14 games. Uh, as we have discussed, Lane Thomas has had a very good month of May, but some other Nats are really struggling right now. Uh, K-Bert Ruiz, he on Monday night as the Nats starting catcher and number seven batter, 0 for 4. Ruiz is having a terrible May. Uh, his OPS for this regular season is down to 628. Alex Call, he on Monday night as the Nats starting center fielder and number nine batter, 0 for 3. A uh, Call is having a terrible May. His OPS for this regular season is down to 613. You know, Cole has become the Nats' number one center fielder uh, with center fielder Victor Robles still out. Uh, he has been on the 10-day injured list since May 8th, retroactive to May 7th with uh, what had been deemed as uh, back spasms. Uh, game two for the Nats at the Dodgers Tuesday night at 10-10. Jake Irvin will be the Nats' starting pitcher. So Brandon Hyde on Memorial Day afternoon had his 600th regular season game as Orioles manager. Yeah, 600 regular season games for Brandon Hyde as Orioles manager. Uh, the O's on December 14th, 2018, named Hyde as the uh, 20th manager in franchise history. He has been the team's manager for a while now, but uh, unfortunately, this game number 600 did not go so well. Uh, a 5 nothing loss to the Cleveland Guardians at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Memorial Day afternoon in game one of a three-game series. Uh, the O's now are 34-20 and 20 and now are a half game behind the American League West leading Texas Rangers for the second-best record in the American League uh, and the second-best record in the majors. Now, before we go any further, the O's in this game on Monday afternoon potentially suffered a major injury. Cedric Mullins left the game with what Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference called, quote, a right abductor groin strain, end quote. Uh, Mullins suffered the injury while grounding out for the second out in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, he in the game as the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter went 0 for 2 with two walks, uh, also went 0 for 1 on stolen bases. Here was Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Monday afternoon on Cedric Mullins. Right now, it's a right abductor groin strain. So going through all the tests right now, hoping for great news on that, but never know. How tough is it to see a guy like him pull up like that? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's the last thing you want to see. So, especially, you know, um, he's a huge part of our team and 
if we're going to miss him for a little while, we'll see. But if we are, if we have to, then if the other guys step up, and this is part of the game, we've been pretty fortunate so far this year, and and these things happen. Yes, they do. But boy, losing Cedric Mullins for a significant amount of time uh, would be a big blow to the O's. Uh, Mullins for this regular season is number two among all qualified Orioles players in OPS at 835. He entering Monday was number one among all Orioles position players in wins above replacement war per baseball reference for this regular season at 1.8. So we shall see what the deal with Cedric Mullins is. Uh, the O's on Monday afternoon got dominated by the Guardian starting pitcher Logan Allen. Uh, he tossed seven scoreless innings with 10 strikeouts. The O's for the game, no runs, just five hits, just two walks. So the five hits were two doubles and three singles. Anthony Santander did have a good game. He had three of the Orioles' five hits. Uh, he is the Orioles starting DH and number three batter went three for four with a double and two singles. The shame of this loss was that the O's wasted a great outing by their starting pitcher, Tyler Wells. Uh, Wells had a terrific bounce back start. He allowed one run in six innings with seven strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up just four hits, two doubles, and two singles. He threw 101 pitches, 65 strikes versus 36 balls. He did commit a balk. He did get charged with a throwing error, but Wells was a lot better than he was in his previous start, the 9-6 win at the New York Yankees last Wednesday night. Wells in that game, five runs in five innings. He gave up just five hits, but four of them were extra base hits. Three home runs, a triple, and a single. He issued two walks. He did record eight strikeouts. Uh, Tyler Wells does remain number one among all qualified pitchers in the majors in whip for this 2023 regular season. Uh, The Tyler Wells Major League leading whip is 0.83. He overall has been really good. Here was Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Monday afternoon on Tyler Wells. I thought Tyler did a great job. Um, How many punch out? Seven. Seven punch outs, yeah. Um, Just, you know, that one leadoff double and a balk on an inside move and which is uncharacteristic, and one run given up through six innings. But I thought he had everything going, good slider again. Uh, some early kind of high pitch count innings there early in the game, but but uh, um, elevated when he needed to, got some punch outs with elevated fastballs, and gave us a chance, one run through six. Yeah, Tyler Wells was really good. The man who relieved him on Monday afternoon, CNL Perez, uh, was not so good, although Perez was plagued by some bad luck. So CNL Perez in this game allowed four runs, two earned in a third of an inning. Uh, that happened in a four-run Guardian seventh. Uh, Perez faced five batters, got just one out. He came into the game to begin the top of the seventh with the O's trailing one nothing, He induced a ground out, but then gave up four consecutive one-out hits, the last two of which were an opposite field RBI single by Kim Gallagher through the right side of the infield, and an RBI hustle double by Stephen Kwan on a grounder up the middle into right center field. And then two unearned runs that were charged to Perez came on a one-out throwing error by second baseman Adam Frazier, who on a fielder's choice grounder by Ahmed Rosario made a bad throw to catcher James McCann at home, and the ball got by McCann uh, to where two runs scored. Uh, three other Orioles relievers on Monday afternoon, Mike Bauman, Michael Givens, and Keegan Aiken, did combine for two and two-thirds scoreless innings. Uh, this was Brandon Hyde during his postgame presser on Monday afternoon on CNL Perez. CNL for me had a bad luck inning. Starts off, he gets an out, then he gets the ball off the AstroTurf or plate or something, whatever. <laughs> Went straight up in the air. Uh, and then a few ground balls that just was out of reach. Um, so I thought I threw the ball fine, just 
some ground balls that went through, and then uh, Bauman came in, did a great job. You know, ball down in a way that you know, make a, the throw to the plate was a little bit short, but uh, you know, give them credit for being aggressive and just a just a you know tough inning for us there. Yes, it was. You know, Sino Perez in the 2022 regular season was great. 57 and two-thirds innings, ERA a 140. But uh, Perez in this 2023 regular season has had some problems. Uh, 19 and two-thirds innings, an ERA a 412. But what stands out the most to me, the Sino Perez whip. Uh, 193, way too high of a whip for a reliever. Uh, Perez is putting far too many guys on base. His strikeout rate is down considerably as well. Perez, for the 2022 regular season, had a strikeouts per nine innings of 8.58. Uh, Perez, for this regular season, has a strikeouts per nine innings of just 6.41. Game two for the O's against the Guardians, Tuesday night at 7.05. Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 584. will include a lot for you on the Commanders. Also, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Tuesday night at 10-10. Have game two of a three-game series at the National League West leading Los Angeles Dodgers. The O's on Tuesday night at 7.05. Have game two of a three-game series against the Cleveland Guardians at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. Tuesday, and I'll talk to you on Wednesday.